Good morning, everyone. It's kind of emotional to be back. It's so good to be with family, just like Dan said. It really feels like coming home, and there's a lot of you. I mean, there's a lot of people here this morning. And I wish I could take an hour with every single one of you, but there's only 16 hours that I can be awake in a day, so we'll, we'll do our best. I see a lot of new faces as well. Um, so I would like to just let you know who I am if you don't know me. If you do, this can just be a walk down memory lane. Uh, I was a pastor here for a few years. Um, the Worship the King sign, I guess, dates me now. <laughs> I like what you guys have done with the place. Um, I was also a, a community pastor, so I worked in the the Windsor East community, we had an outreach project with kids uh, called Ingonyama. Is everything okay? Should it be closer to my mouth? I've got a larger head than most people. <laughs> Don't laugh so hard at it. <laughs> Thanks, Danny. Um, so we had an outreach project for Project Ingonyama with a, with a bunch of kids in, in Windsor East, and uh, I was a youth pastor here since like 2004 I got involved when Dan started leading. Um, this is even before the Worship the King sign. <laughs> so this is way back, before the black curtains. And basically I was on staff here for a bunch of years, had a great time with the team here and, and the pastors here. And honestly, you guys have an incredible pastoral team. I want to encourage you to keep looking after them. Keep praying for them, encouraging them, supporting them. A pastoral team like this is worth its weight in gold. So don't take it for granted and keep on encouraging and doing what you can to, to keep them feeling supported. Then about a year, and a, a year and a bit ago, my wife and I, we did the Introduction to God Movements course. And when we did the Introduction to God Movements course, we did a uh, kind of a survey on the state of Christianity around the world. And as we did the survey, we knew that Europe was, was kind of spiritually dry. I think we get that impression, but having done this course, we saw how serious it was. So we made this decision that we're in such a vibrant community here, and, and, and God is doing such great things here. We, we should be free to take the open door into, uh, into Europe if it's there. And my wife, Bean Swiss, was the open door. Um, and so we, we decided to buy a plane ticket and go off to her homeland of Switzerland to just encourage and be a part of the kingdom there. So about a year ago, we head off to Switzerland to a little town called Clarence, um, which is a part of Montreux in, in Switzerland. And so if you're ever in the area, you can just look us up. It has been a bit tough. Uh, Switzerland is cold. I've had eight months of winter, and that is rough on the toes. Um, but it's not just the weather that's cold. The people are a little bit cold as well. Not all of them. We have one, we have one here. This is Cami from Switzerland. She was the first person I baptized in Switzerland, which was pretty cool. So her mom is one of the elders in our church, and she lives in Limpopo now for the last two months. It's really great to have you here this morning. 
But some of the people are really cold. They, 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 they have a very individualistic lifestyle, which makes it really tough when your job is people, when people don't want to connect with people. So it has been, it has been a little bit tough. Um, for example, I went to a restaurant, and I ordered a... The, the waiter came over and he said, what would you like? And I said, an Americano. And he turned around and walked away. And I was just like, what am I going to get? So he brought my Americano, but basically, I was there to provide the money, he was there to provide the, surf the, the service. Minimal interaction was desired. My second day landing here in South Africa, I went into identity in Cresta. And as I walked in, this lady at the door said, good morning, how are you? And I wanted to cry. <laughs> it was so touching. She was so warm, so welcoming, and I hadn't experienced that in so long. <laughs> of course, we had to take our kids out of the King School, which I know, it's a great place here. We couldn't leave them. <laughs> we tried. No, but... It's not true. <laughs> we had to take our kids out of the King's School, put them in school in Switzerland, which is absolutely fine. This is Melissa's first day at school in Switzerland, and her teacher there in the background is fantastic. They got along so well, she's so sweet. But when we asked Melissa what was the, what was the thing she missed the most about South Africa, she said, doing worship in school. She missed doing worship in school. Now she's in a school where she's not allowed to pray, she's not allowed to talk about God, She's not allowed to yeah, express her faith. So it's a, it's a very different um, environment. So Melissa and Ruben, my seven and five-year-old, would find each other at lunch, and they would, they would pray with their eyes open, they would change to English so no one could understand them, and then, and then eat their, their food. So it's true. Going to Switzerland, we found a country that has no load shedding, Minimal potholes in the road. <laughs> they got a low, um, a low level of unemployment. But my question this morning is, is that enough for life? Is that enough for satisfaction? Is that enough for fulfillment? Is that our life's purpose? So I've titled my sermon this morning, Kingdom or Comfort. It's a little play on words from a delirious album that came out in 2008 which was a prayer or a cry to save me from my kingdom of comfort. And I think it's still relevant uh, to an extent in the church today. Are we here for kingdom purposes? Are we here for mission? Or are we here because we want to get a higher level of comfort? When we get baptized and we accept Jesus and we give our lives to him, we accept the whole kingdom mandate. We accept everything that Jesus is. We don't just accept parts of him, right? We take the whole Bible, not just the comforting verses, but the challenging verses as well. For example, we read in um, Philippians chapter 2 here, a very encouraging verse, and we can read it and see encouragement from being united in Christ, comfort in love, sharing in his spirit, tenderness, compassion, such great words. And we're like, yeah, that's awesome. But if we take that, we need to take two verses before it as well. And the two verses before it promise that we're going to suffer for Christ. We're going to struggle. We're going to... We're promised suffering. 
And so we have to take the whole Bible, the whole kingdom mandate, if we want to live the purpose for which we were created. We have to chase after truth. And in fact, I'm sure that chasing after comfort will never satisfy you. If one day you get to this place where you're like, yes, I feel safe, I feel secure, I feel comfortable, everything's sorted out, I would bet you anything you won't feel fulfilled and you won't feel satisfied. Why? Because we were not created for comfort. One of the easiest ways that I know this is when I watch how rugby guys go through initiation. <laughs> when they join like the first team rugby team, they have a mission, they want to they play rugby, and so they will suffer. They will absolutely suffer. Why? Because of the mission. They'll have, they'll have a smile on their face while, while they're suffering through this initiation. This is why I played soccer. <laughs> But when we have a vision, we're ready to endure. Amen? So, if you have your Bibles, which I hope you do, this morning I'd like for us to camp out in John chapter 11. So, If you could open up your Bibles, I'm not putting it on the screen because I want us to be people that know what the Bible looks like and feels like and how to navigate it. So open up to John chapter 11 and keep it open there. This is a passage that follows the resurrection of Lazarus. So the miracle of, the, of, of raising Lazarus from the dead was a very important miracle in the life of Jesus, and I'm sure in the life of Lazarus too. Um, it was very important in his ministry and... So we're going to read verses 45 to 53. It says in the NIV, Therefore many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing? They asked. Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. Then one of them, named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up, You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. And not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. All right, let's just pray. We thank you, Father, for your word. We thank you, Father, that, that you are here this morning to talk to us. We pray... We pray that we may be sensitive to your, your voice. We pray that we may be sensitive to what it is that you're trying to share with us this morning. I pray for open hearts, open minds. I pray that we're able to walk away this morning more in love with you, more challenged by you, and more dedicated to your mission, your vision for our lives, ready to give up whatever it takes to get you. In Jesus' name, amen. So this passage is very interesting. If you notice, all the Jews come to comfort Martha and Mary. Okay? They come and they comfort Martha and Mary and they witness the same miracle. Jesus arrives four days after Lazarus is dead, wakes him up from the dead, and so everyone experiences the same thing coming from more or less the same background. The Jews weren't very friendly to Jesus at this time of his life. They were quite hostile. So they, they, they had the same background 
And yet there are two different reactions to his miracle. Two very different reactions. So this morning I want to look at first those who turned to Jesus, then I want to look at those who turned from Jesus, and then I want to look at the difference between the two. So those who turned to Jesus, those who turned from Jesus, and the difference between the two. So first, those who turn to Jesus. This happens in the Bible. People see God's mighty work, they see what he does, and they, they just give themselves wholeheartedly to him. We read in the book of Exodus, in chapter 14, it says, When the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and Moses, his servant. So people see God's work, they see what he's doing, and they respond by putting their faith in him. But this, verse in, this, this, this word in verse 45, in John chapter, 40, uh, chapter 11, 45, it means more than just simply they, they believed that it was Jesus that, that woke Lazarus up. That's not what it's saying. John Calvin says that this, this word believe means they opened themselves up to believe everything that Jesus was and taught. So they were opening themselves up to follow Jesus' doctrine. So they were now open to abandoning their efforts to trust in, God, in Jesus' efforts. All right? They were open to realizing that what they thought was real, what they thought mattered, abandoning that and accepting what Jesus thought was true, real, and effective. So the work of Jesus was slowly being understood to be enough. Jesus' work not our work, will lead us to salvation. But why? Why Jesus' work? Well, if you look in verse 49 and 50 at what Caiaphas said, he John says he accidentally prophesied. Sounds good, eh? But what was, what was Caiaphas saying? Why was he saying that it was better for Jesus to die from his point of view? What was he trying to express? Well, there was tension between the Jews and the Romans, especially now that Jesus was, was getting a following, there was tension. They wanted to, the, the Jews wanted to be free from the Romans, and, and they were looking for anyone who could lead them into freedom from this oppression, and so there was tension. But Caiaphas realized that if he could, if he could squash this tension, that would increase, that would improve the relationship between the Sanhedrin and the Romans. All right? So they saw Jesus, he saw Jesus as a great opportunity. He saw that if, if he sacrificed Jesus, he would appease the Romans. Why Jesus? Why was Jesus now this opportunity? Two reasons. The first was because Jesus was innocent. Other than the fact that yeah, he had people following him and he was very influential and he was, he was gaining a, a, a big group of followers, he was innocent. If the Jews came and sacrificed some common criminal for, for their crimes, the Romans wouldn't be impressed. They would be like, yeah, you, you're just punishing, you're doing capital punishment for someone who did something wrong. That doesn't impress us. Even if it was someone who, who, who was influential, it's not important because he was a criminal. That's why you're killing him. That's not impressive. Number two was that he was important. Jesus was incredibly important. His name was known around the whole area, and so his importance gave him credence to be sacrificed. All right? Even if they had sacrificed one of his disciples, it wouldn't have been enough. It had to be the leader. 
by sacrificing someone who was innocent and someone who was important, the Romans would have been like, these people are committed to our relationship. Do you see that it is the exact same reason why Jesus is the perfect sacrifice for you? The prophecy came true because Jesus is innocent. He didn't die on the cross for any of his own sins. He died for your sins. Your sin, the guilt that you carry, requires payment. It requires a price. And Jesus didn't die for his own, his own sin. If he had died on the cross carrying sin, he would have had to have died for his own sin. But he died innocent. Secondly, He's the Son of God. His importance, his infinite importance, gives eternal value to his death. That eternal value means that his death can now be applied to all of us. So the same two reasons that qualify Jesus to be a great sacrifice for the Romans are the same two reasons that qualify him to be a sacrifice for us. Which means that eternal infinite value of Jesus' death on the cross means you cannot add anything to it. And that is not an easy message to receive. No one likes to hear that. I'll tell you why. We don't like to be told that there's nothing we can do except receive it because we want to think that, hey, if I, if I pray more or if I read my Bible more, if I do good things, give my money away, then I can expect salvation. God owes me. I know I'm going to get it because I earned it. We start putting our faith in ourselves. I was so good, I know God's going to send me to heaven. I was so dedicated to reading the Bible, I know he's going to accept me. But that's not the message of the cross. The cross says just, just receive it. And we don't like to hear that. It's difficult. That's not exactly been the message of the church over the last few years or decades. The message of the church has slowly changed to say, give your life to Jesus, not because you're a sinner in need of salvation, but give your life to Jesus because if you do this, this, and this, then he'll give you that, that, and that. That if you come to church, you read your Bible, you, you, you give money, then... Jesus will take care of you. If you're feeling weak, he'll make you feel strong. If you're feeling sad, he'll make you feel happy. If you need help, he'll give you help. That's been the message of the church for the last few decades. And it is not the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel is you are a sinner who deserves death. You're dead and you need a miracle. You need salvation. That's the message of the gospel. Do you know what we found in Switzerland is if you tell someone that you're a Christian and you go to church, they're like, oh, shame. I'm okay. I don't need Jesus. Because of the message that we've been preaching. The, the response is something like, I can take care of myself, I've got enough savings, I'm doing all right, I don't need church, I don't need Jesus. You do? Oh, shame. Do you want some money? 
So my question in this point is, what about you? How do you deal with your guilt? Because you're guilty. Like I was saying to the, the teenagers on Friday night, this world is not fair. This world is unjust. Unjust. No? Unjust. This world is unjust. And you are one of the reasons. And so you need to pay a price. When someone has done something unjust towards you, you want revenge. You need them to pay a price. Well, guess what? You've done something unjust towards an eternal God, and you need to pay an eternal price. So what do you do with that guilt? How do you deal with it? Do you go to therapy? Do you wait for your next vacation so you can get away from yourself? Do you do meditation? Read self-help books? All of these things are good things, but they're not going to do anything for you unless you give it to Jesus. All right? Now let's turn our attention to those who turned from Jesus. So these are people that were a part of the group that saw what Jesus did. You could call them believers. They believed that he must be he must be the Son of God. But they turned from him. They saw his miracles. They even believed that he was God. He had to be with what he was doing. But in verse 46, we read that belief is not enough because they turned from him. In fact, James 2 verse 19 says, You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Our actions interpret our beliefs. And our beliefs are built upon our worldview. So what worldview did these Jews hold? Clearly it was different from those who turned to Jesus. They were interpreting Jesus' works based on the belief that the Messiah was supposed to come and serve the Jews. Their worldview was that the Messiah must come and make their life easier, make their life more comfortable, make their life more free. He came to give them what they wanted. Now Jesus arrived and was becoming a threat to everything they wanted, and so they got scared. So they turned from Jesus because they wanted the world. But at what cost? Jesus is divisive. He's a divisive character, and John tries to show that throughout his gospel letter. And we can see a whole bunch of examples here about how Jesus separates people into two groups, all depending on the worldview that you hold. Did you know that you could believe in Jesus and not have that change your action at all? It's true. I have a mentor in, in, in Switzerland who who's a pastor of another church, or one of the pastors of another church. And he told me that he got together with a bunch of the teens in his church, and he said to them, um, we're going to be doing a series on sexuality and, and sex and all that, just like Wes is going to be doing with the teens here. But when he said that to them, they said, no thanks. They said, we don't want to hear what the church or the Bible has to say about sex. Thanks very much. We know more or less what it says. We're happy with what we're doing. You can teach us about something else. The message there is, I want to come to church to feel better about myself. I don't want to come to church 
because the truth is supposed to change my life. That's not what it's about. I just want to come here so I can deal with my guilt. Just take my guilt away, make me feel better, so that I can carry on doing what I'm doing. It is possible to believe in Jesus without changing your actions. That's pretty intense, and it's a risk each one of us have to confront. So finally, let's have a look at the difference between these two groups. What separates them? Like I've been saying, it depends on your worldview. One group here is hoping the Messiah is going to come and just make life easier. Once I give my life to Jesus, don't have to wear deodorant, <laughs> don't have to study to pass the test. I'll just be given a spouse, nice and easy. The other group understands that the Messiah has come to restore them to the Father, and it's on His terms, not ours. Matthew six verse thirty-three. What does it say? And anyone else? That side of the church has got it. What about you guys? Matthew six thirty-three. And. All these things will be given to you as well. So I'll read in the NIV. Seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. One group, oh bye bye. One group reads this verse, and they they go, oh wow. Okay, so to get all these things, I figured out what I got to do. I'm going to seek His kingdom and His righteousness, and I'm going to get all these things. It's pretty awesome. I figured out the formula. Figured out the secret, and know what I'm going to do to get all these things. I've been I've been showing up at work early. That was the wrong thing. I got to I got to seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. I want comfort. I want happiness. I want security. Now I can see how to get it. The other group, however, looks past that to the very heart of this verse. They see that this verse is addressing. Their desire for these things. We all have a desire for these things. Of course, we all have a desire for these things. And they see that this verse is saying, "Put something higher. Put something as more important. You don't seek to get those other things. You seek the kingdom and His righteousness. Success in your life doesn't look like getting security and riches and comfort or whatever it might be that you're chasing after. Success looks like getting His kingdom and His righteousness. Your life is then set up to get His kingdom and His righteousness, even if you don't get these other things, because His kingdom and His righteousness is now your only target. It just so happens. That God promises to take care of us. That is a complete change in mindset. Yeah. I've been able to experience two very different cultures over the past few decades. Living here in South Africa, living over there in Switzerland. It's not just the weather that's different. Look, there's giraffes. Look, there's a kid who fell over. 
Don't be embarrassed, Dana. Things work. Electri electricity stays on. You can live life the way you want to in Switzerland. But we, if we believe in the message of the world, if we believe in the message of the world that says the problem that I have is just the infrastructure in this country. You know, this is my problem. If it weren't for load shedding, I could be happy. If it weren't for the low job rates, I could be happy. But that's not what I found, having traveled to this wonderfully ideal country. The depression rates, in fact, I looked them up, in Switzerland are higher than they are in South Africa. Now, you might hear that and be like, <sighs> must be some things they're not taking into account, like my mortgage or... <laughs> you might try to justify it, but the fact that the depression rates are even comparable should tell you that the problem is not the infrastructure. We love to complain in this country, but guess what? It's not just this country that's making you depressed. It's not this country that's your biggest struggle. Don't get me wrong, I understand that there are very real, serious issues here. I understand that there's real tension in people's lives. And, and I, I sympathize with that big time. I don't want to minimize that coming in as a foreigner. <laughs> I just fear that we are convincing ourselves to look at this life as if it's a pursuit of comfort and not mission. I just fear that there are too many South Africans chasing after comfort going across the world and giving up kingdom. I know many of us know people who have left this country and left the church at the same time. I know Comfort is not going to bring you satisfaction. There's a South African family that lives on my street in Switzerland. They've been there for 16 years. They're making plans to come back home. <laughs> Because comfort is not enough. They went there for comfort and they found that it's not enough. You can pursue kingdom anywhere, that's true. But pursue kingdom, pursue mission. Today, this week, right now. Don't set your life up on anything else. Ray Comfort gives this analogy. Thanks to Jonathan for this, wherever he is. Two men are seated in a plane. The first is given a parachute and told to put it on because it'll improve his flight. He's a little skeptical at first. He cannot see how wearing a parachute on board a plane could possibly improve his flight. But after some time, he decides to experiment and just see if the claims are true. As he straps the apparatus to his back, he notices the weight of it on his shoulders and he finds he now has difficulty sitting upright. However, he consoles himself with the flight attendant's promise that the parachute will improve his flight and decides to give it a little bit more time. As the flight progresses, he notices that some of the other passengers are now laughing at him because he's wearing a parachute inside the plane. He begins to feel somewhat humiliated. 
And as they continue to laugh and point at him, he can stand it no longer. He sinks in his seat, unstraps the parachute, and throws it to the floor. Disillusionment and bitterness fill his heart because, as far as he's concerned, he was told an outright lie. A second man is also given a parachute, but this is what he's told. He's told to put it on because at any moment he'll have to jump out of the plane at 25,000 feet. He gratefully puts the parachute on. He doesn't even notice the weight of it on his shoulders. He, does, he isn't concerned that he can't sit properly in his chair. His mind is consumed with the thought of what would happen if he jumped without the parachute. Let's analyze the motive and the result of each passenger's experience. The first man's motive for putting on the parachute was to improve his flight. The result of his experience was that he was humiliated by the other passengers, disillusioned and somewhat embittered against those who gave him the parachute. As far as he's concerned, it'll be a long time before anyone gets one of those things on his back again. The second man put on the parachute solely to survive the jump to come. And because of his knowledge of what would happen to him if he jumped without it, he has a deep-rooted joy and peace in his heart, knowing that he has been saved from certain death. This knowledge gives him the ability to withstand the mockery of the other passengers. His attitude towards those who gave him the parachute is one of heartfelt gratitude. So as the band comes up, I want to just have a look at, this one, at this, the story that we've read. It's one group of people. They had the exact same experience, but their reactions were very different. We've looked at the, these two different reactions and why they're so different, that it all comes from your worldview and what you believe, the role of Jesus is supposed to be in your life. If you believe that it's in pursuit of a life of comfort and happiness, you might expect Jesus to bring you that comfort and happiness that you've always been chasing after. You don't want him to change your life, just take away your guilt so that you're free to carry on enjoying whatever makes you happy. But if you believe that the purpose of life is to glorify God, then you'll understand that Jesus has come to enable you to glorify God by restoring your relationship with the Father. And finally, in verse 53 of what we read here, we're told that the government leaders began plotting to take Jesus' life. Right? Now, we're experts in this country at complaining about the government. <laughs> but Jesus literally had the government after him. It's one thing when they aren't fixing the potholes in your streets. It's another thing when they're chasing you to kill you. And what did Jesus do? He could have gone to the outskirts of Galilee and lived a comfortable life, hiding away in peace, but he didn't. Why didn't Jesus do that? Because he had a mission from the Father. He had a mission from the Father. And he was going to fulfill that mission no matter what the cost. That's what you and I are made for. We're made for mission. You're not an accident. You're not the result of your mom and dad deciding to have a baby. You were placed here by a loving Father God who gave you unique talents, unique gifts. No matter where you find yourself in the world, 
you're called to grow God's kingdom. You're not called to get a promotion unless it's to grow God's kingdom. You're not called to to have all your desires fulfilled unless you desire what God desires. So I know I'm stepping on toes. I know I'm, I'm coming into comfort zones and we don't like that either. But I'm trying trying to replace our heart with God's heart. Because I believe you will have a life so much more fulfilled and satisfied if you live for mission. So can I invite everyone to stand up, get the blood moving through your body again. Close your eyes. And as we enter into the song, I'm going to ask you a few things. First, is that question I asked earlier on. What are you doing with your guilt? How do you deal with your guilt? Have you been able to give it all up to Jesus? Secondly, what do you desire most? Are you seeking all these other things? Or are you seeking first his kingdom?